starting a new series today on the subject of worship, uh, and we're calling it the five W's of worship, you know, uh, what, who, where, when, and why. Now, worship is a word that we use in church circles all the time, uh, but it's not a word that we use in the culture too often. Um, you know, we may have a queen, technically, but who here worships the queen? You know, we don't operate under that kind of setup, and and we, when you use this word worship, it kind of, well, what does that really mean? It's not used in the popular culture, but we awfully, we, we use it awfully uh, frequently in uh, church circles. But what does it really mean? And when you think about worship, if you're a person of faith, uh, it's a hard question to answer. And when you start asking yourself the question, do I worship anything, it becomes an even more difficult question to answer. So I want to, to challenge you a little bit this morning and help us understand, well, what is this thing that we call worship? So we're going to look at the what today uh, of worship, and we're going to use a story uh, that's a very odd story. You'll find it in the Bible in John's Gospel. So, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four stories that we see in the Bible's New Testament about Jesus. And this one is only found in John. It's one isolated story. It's a really interesting story, a bit strange because the behavior of Jesus is strange uh, in the story. And I want you to try and find it in your Bibles. It's in John chapter 4. And we're going to read the, the, most of the story that's there, all right? Does any of you have a Bible in the room today? Yeah, you do have one? Do any of you have a phone with data on it? Okay, well, I can get you the Bible for free. No catch, all right? It's the best Bible app probably in the world, and it's called YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version, all one word. You can go to the Apple Store or Google Play or wherever. I mean, it's all over the place. It's called YouVersion, and just download that app. It's the best Bible app that I've, that I've seen, multiple languages, tons of translations. It's all free, no catch. You don't have to pay one cent ever, okay? And you can get the Bible right on your phone on you version. So if you want to do that now, you can. Uh, we encourage you to use your phone in church because you use it all the time anyway. So why not use it here also? Uh, so John chapter 4, this is a discussion, a conversation that Jesus has alone with a woman, a very peculiar woman. And I want you to listen to the story and then we're going to unpack it a little bit and try and learn something about the subject of worship. The Pharisees, this is John chapter 4, verse 1, heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't even Jesus who baptized people, but his disciples baptized the people. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given uh, to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. This is an Old Testament story from Genesis. You don't really need to know the details. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well 
and it was about the sixth hour. That would be noon by their reckoning of time. When a Samaritan woman, maybe some of you know the story of the good Samaritan. Well, this is a Samaritan woman came to draw water out of this well. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Uh, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food, so he was alone with the woman. And he asks her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And we have a little comment there. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Hmm. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, you know, the guy from the Old Testament, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and uh, did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Are you greater than Jacob from the book of Genesis? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And he replies, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five of them. You're kind of the Elizabeth Taylor of the day. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. He's poking into her personal life there. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, who speak to you, am he. This is the conversation. You may be asking, what in the world are they talking about? What's living water? What's a Jew? What's a Samaritan? I'm clueless with this story. I want to show you some things to, to put some light on it. You're going really fast, David. If you'll back up, back up again. Okay, go forward. You're on the Hold the map, okay? So uh, let me break it down for you so you, you can, it'll come alive. Uh, verses 3 and 4. 
So what's going on here is that there's a bit of a competition that's happening. And John the Baptist is baptizing people in water. And Jesus is baptizing people in water, or at least his followers are baptizing people in water. And there seems to be a bit of a popularity uh, contest happening here. And uh, the word on the street is that Jesus is gaining popularity. And his people are baptizing more people than John is. And, you know, he's starting to rise in popularity in a sense. And when he hears of this, it says in verses 3 and 4, he left Judea. This is where he's doing the baptizing. And he goes back to Galilee. Now, I want you to look at the map. And at the bottom there, this is the first century uh, little chunk of Israel. The, the green part is actually what we call the West Bank today. That's where a lot of the violence is in, in the Middle East. Okay, uh, So he left Judea. And he goes back, he wants to go back up to Galilee, which you see in the north there. You see the yellow chunk? How many of you see it? Okay, that's the province of Galilee. And down at the bottom, you see where it says Judea? That's the province of Judea. So he wants to go from Judea up to Galilee. And it says, now he had to go through Samaria. But when you look at the map, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. He could take the little river there that you see in, uh, in kind of the center of the map. It runs north-south. That's the Jordan River. He could have bypassed Samaria and gone on a boat and taken the Jordan and gone up to Galilee. But it says he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you're reading this story 2,000 years ago, right away your eyes are getting big. Because there is an old, old fight between so-called Jews and so-called Samaritans. And I want you to, to understand a bit of the history here because this is why this conversation is so powerful that he's having with this woman. Uh, a thousand years before this conversation takes place, there is a, there's a big, big thing that happens in Israel uh, in the, the 10th century BC. So it's like a thousand years before the conversation. Do any of you know what the thing is? We taught on it many months ago. What is it? Yeah, you've got a civil war that happens in Israel. So what happens is there's a, there's a king, his name is Solomon, and he's, he wants to transfer power to his son. His son's name is a guy named Rehoboam. And what Rehoboam does to the people in Israel is he's going to levy them with high taxes. Uh, he's going to increase their work conditions. He's going to kind of tighten his fist around them as he leads them. And uh, he's going to lead, or he wants to lead in a very rigid fashion, in a very controlling fashion. Uh, he gets advice from some of his father's uh, friends. And his father's friends say, don't lead like that. The people are not going to like that. And then he turns to some, some of his friends who are younger, and they say, you need to squeeze the people. And so Rehoboam says, I'm going to squeeze all of you. And what the people do is they rebel against him. And they say, we don't want you to be our king. We don't like you. Uh, you know, if they had a chance to vote, they'd say, we're not voting for you. <laughs> okay? But they had no chance to vote. So what they did was they split they, they broke apart Israel into two parts. And you had 10 tribes going to the north of the land. 
and you had two that went to the south. So the northern part, you see where it says Samaria there? That's where those 10 uh, went to the north. They said, we do not want this guy, Rehoboam, to be our leader. And they choose uh, another person by the name of Jeroboam. The way you can remember this is the Battle of the Boams, I call it, okay? And so what happens is Jeroboam, he becomes the king of what's called Israel, which is the chunk that you see that we call Samaria. And then uh, Rehoboam, the guy who they revolted against, he ends up down south in Judea, and he takes two tribes, and he reigns over those tribes. So you have a split happening in Israel. A civil war, effectively, is what happens. And it's all because of corrupt leadership. And what uh, Jeroboam did, uh, very clever, he's, he's up in what we call Samaria there on the map, and the Jewish people there who have, who have made, them, uh, made him their leader, they, they don't want to go down south. They don't want to go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Uh, it was the capital city, uh, kind of ironic in the news today. You have the American president. You can turn the radio off. To, yeah. I don't know if they want pizza or... Is it pizza? No, okay. I would like pizza. Anyway, so um, uh, what happens is, uh, uh, right, the, the capital city of Judea uh, is Jerusalem. It's kind of an amusing thing because now the American president has gone out and said, oh, yes, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and everybody's in an uproar. Well, I mean, back then it was kind of an obvious thing. Jerusalem was the capital because that's where the temple was, you see. And so all these people who are up in what we call Samaria on the map or what they called Israel back then, they have no temple. They're not going down south. They're not going to worship, quote unquote, uh, in Jerusalem. And so what Jeroboam does is he effectively invents a whole different way of worship. And so he says, well, we're going to have a, a, a worship system of sorts and the capital city would be Samaria. You can see a little city under the big Samaria. There's a little Samaria. That was the capital city. He set up a whole sacrificial system there. But his religion was not really Judaism anymore. It was a mishmash of all the different stuff that was out there. These people started worshiping idols and doing all kinds of crazy things. And this was the religious system that he set up because he knew that if he didn't set something up, the people would say, we're going back down south. And so he sets this whole thing up and the people actually follow him. And so they're worshiping a mishmash of all kinds of various religious views. Some Judaism stuck in there, but not too much. And it's really a big, big mess. Uh, and eventually what's going to happen 200 years later because of this mess is that a, a, uh, a superpower will come called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to completely besiege that whole area of Samaria, what was called Israel back then. They're going to besiege it. They, they take all the people away. They, they take them and, and make them captive. And they're the dominant superpower 200 years after this civil war takes place. And the Assyrians would take out that whole land of, of, uh, of Israel to the north, or what we call Samaria on this map. And they were a very violent, very cruel superpower, very powerful. And they had this kind of weird policy. Um, when they would conquer a land, 
they would populate that land with people from other lands that they had conquered. Uh, and so what they do in this area of what, again, what we call Samaria on the map or what they called Israel back then, is they bring in all these people from all these other places that they conquered. And what they do is they intermarry with some of the remaining people who didn't get sent off to other places. And so they produce, uh, in effect, a new ethnicity of people known as the Samaritans. Now, the people down south, they didn't like these people. They said, these people are not true Jewish people. They're kind of half-breeds, and they, look, they turn their noses down at them. And there's this rift that, that, that builds over centuries because of who these Samaritans are. And these people down south in Judea, the same thing more or less would happen to them as well. The Babylonians would come in. After the Babylonians beat the Assyrians, they would come and they would take out Judea. Are you still with me? So what you have here in Samaria is, you, again, you have a whole corrupted worship system. You have the, the Assyrians who intermarry with some of the Jewish people, and you have this new race, if you will, a new ethnicity, and you have this divide between the Jews of the south and the Samaritans of the north. Enter the story where Jesus actually has the guts to have a conversation with this woman. It, when it says he had to go through Samaria, it's almost like he wanted to go through Samaria because he wanted to have the conversation with this woman. No, but no, no true Jew wanted to pass through that area to get to Galilee. They'd take the Jordan River. They'd even dare to go across the Jordan River into Perea and the Decapolis to head north, but they did not like Samaritans. And this is why we're told in the Bible the two of them did not like each other. So number one, Jesus is alone with a woman, which is a taboo in that day. Number two, he's talking with a Samaritan woman, and he's not supposed to talk with her, and he's having quite the conversation with her, and the conversation revolves around worship. And so we see the thing begin to ensue. If you go to the next slide. And so one of the things that he says to this woman is he says, you know, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. In other words, your worship system is all, you know, it's Jeroboam came up with this all-dressed pizza of all these different religious views, and he kind of threw Judaism in there a little bit. And you, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. And what he's saying there, the Jewish people, they, they observe the whole Old Testament, those, those folks to the south. The Samaritans, they only observed and, and regarded as, uh, as authoritative a little chunk, the first five books of the Bible, what they called the Pentateuch. So they had that, but the Jews to the south, they said, oh, no, we observe the whole Bible, and we appreciate the whole Bible as being God's word. And so Jesus says, you know, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Again, commenting on this whole history and this whole uh, rift. And then he says to the woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
you guys think that you've got it right worshiping in Samaria, and the Jews think that they've got it right in worshiping in the temple down south in Jerusalem, but I'm telling you about a time that has now come where true worshipers will worship, but notice the word, the Father in spirit and in truth. And God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the conversation. It's centered largely on the subject of worship. Now, you transport to today, you know, 2,000 years later, what in the world is worship? And I want you to ask yourself four questions today, because when Jesus says you worship what you do not know, uh, I would suggest to you that every single person in this room, regardless of your religious background, I don't care if you're an atheist in this room. I don't care if you're a skeptic, you're a Christian skeptic, you're whatever your tribe, your stripe, your view is. I would suggest to you that every single person worships something. And they don't even know sometimes what they worship. And I'm going to give you a little test as to what you are a worshiper of by asking you four questions, all right? Uh, first question, if you want to know what the object is of your worship, what is it that you worship? What is worship? Well, first question to ask yourself, at least according to the Bible, where are your thoughts? What do you think about? So if we were to, to take a little, a little probe and put it on either side of your head, and project it onto our nice big screen here in living color and sound, you know, how many of you would like it if we did that? Nobody. Okay. The reason is you don't want anybody to know what you really think about. Okay. That's, that's your, your business, you think. Well, uh, if we could do that and if we could see inside of your head, we would probably see that in your spare time, in the whatever moments that you can find in the day, I mean, I'm not talking about your, you know, you spend eight, nine, ten hours at work. Some of you, you say, well, my thoughts are on work all day. Well, no, they're not. While you're working and while you're doing your thing, you find moments where you're thinking about something else. There's something driving you. There's something that's repeating itself in your mind. There's a narrative. There's a kind of a mantra that's happening there. And where, where are those thoughts? What are you thinking about? So is it, you know, materialism? Uh, is it your relationships? Is it your kids? Is it your wife? Is it uh, all these things that you keep thinking about and that kind of drive your thoughts and your motives? Well, there's something going on there. So here's how the Bible puts it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, speaking about worship. Uh, and, and Paul finishes a section here talking about the grace of God, how God has shown himself to us. And so he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy toward you, to offer your bodies, he says, strange, as a living sacrifice. Back then in, in Old Testament times, they would offer dead sacrifices to God, animals, would be, the, would be the, the, the choice of sacrifice. Well, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship, he says. 
Okay, how, how, what does he mean by this? Well, he breaks it down. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. So what he's saying there is there is a pattern to this world. This world has a pattern that you can observe. You can see people want, for example, power. Uh, they want control. They want stuff. They want materialism. Uh, they want revenge. Uh, they want to climb the ladder. Uh, they want to look out for number one. Uh, they want to do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. Uh, this is the kind of a pattern that we see that's portrayed in the scripture. And there's a pattern, Paul says, in this world. And you can conform to that pattern if you want to, or you can be transformed and change the way that you think. And when you do this, you'll be able to know what God wants with your life. You know, when I, when I talk to Christian folks, sometimes the first thing that they say is, how do I know what God's will is? How do I know what God's will is? You know, how do I know who to marry? How do I know what job to take? How do I know where to live? All these, these things that they say. And the, the first thing that I reply to them is, well, what do you think about? Because God's will is not complicated. Um, we make it very, very complicated. It's not complicated. When you don't go by what the culture preaches to you, and you go by the standards and the ethics that God is trying to teach us in his word, then you can discern the will of God very quickly. And you can even test and approve what his will is, the Bible says. So what's going on in your head? Like, is your head on, I don't know, movies and materialistic things and media and pop culture and video games? And I mean, if that's what you're thinking about all day long, can I just say to you, that may be what the object is of your worship. Even people who say they're people of faith. Sometimes you look at their lives and you look at what they think about and it has nothing to do with their faith. <laughs> it has to do with the culture and the world at large. So what are the things that you really, if you're being honest with yourself, what do you think about that drives your day? Now, I'm not talking about your job and all the things that you have to do. I'm talking about in those moments where you can focus, what is it that you're thinking about? This may well be the object of your worship. Question number two, where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our time? Because when you take your time and you look at it and you see where you spend most of it, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about where you have to spend it. You know, some of you say, I work two jobs because I have to and I don't like it, but that's where I spend most of my time. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when you have those, those moments and those windows and those blocks, where do you spend that time? What is it that you would rather be doing? This may well be the object of your worship. So the author of Hebrews, talking about time, says this. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. 
And what he's doing is he's saying to the people there in the book of Hebrews, as in the New Testament, he's saying, you know, you need to gather yourselves together. He's speaking to people of faith here. And he's saying your priority in terms of your time needs to be, hey, we need to meet with one another. We need to encourage one another, kind of like what we're doing here today, because there is a day that's coming. There is a day that God has, has set. It's a day of judgment. And we need to be kind of ready and encouraging ourselves uh, to keep on keeping on until that day comes. He says, don't give up doing that. Don't stop doing that as some are in the habit of doing. This is 2,000 years ago. He's talking about where do you spend your time. And I see many, many trends today in, in the whole sort of church world. And wow, it's very, very interesting to observe because the priority of saying, hey, I need to regularly get together with a group of believers, i.e., that's what a church is. It's not the place. It's not the building. It's not the, the political structure. It's none of that. That's all man-made stuff. The idea of coming together regularly with people and encouraging yourselves as you try to be people of faith, this is something that is often forsaken today. This is something that's often optional today. And a lot of people, even people of faith, they say, well, how, how often do you really, how often are you really part of a church? Well, you know, twice a year. And if someone dies three times because I have to go to their funeral, right? So it, it's not like it used to be where the church was, was connected to every piece and part of culture. It's not anymore. It's disconnected from culture. And we have to be very, very intentional to say, hey, we're going to be a part of that. Um, it's where you spend your time, the author of this, this book of Hebrews says. And he says, wow, you need to be careful how you spend your time. Because there are a lot of other things vying for your time. Jesus, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about worry. And he's talking about, you know, you need all of these things. You need food and you need clothes. But don't worry about these things saying, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we drink? He says, you, you run after those things and you, your priorities are messed up. He says, you seek first God. You seek him first. You seek his kingdom. You seek his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. But you get your priorities straight and you put God first. That's how you use your time. That, therefore, is an expression of your worship. But if you're chasing after all these things, and they're not bad things, but you put those things ahead of everything else, well, that then is the object of your worship. So where do you spend your time? It's very, very interesting to observe that today when you look at the modern culture. You know, any kind of free time that we get, we're probably sitting in front of Netflix or, you know, if you're a young person, you're sitting in front of video games or movies or whatever. I mean, we, we look for a lot of entertainment. Uh, we look for a lot, of, a lot of things to amuse ourselves, perhaps. Uh, but those things, all right, if you, that's what drives you, well, that may be the object then of your worship. Question number three, how do we use our talents. How do we use our talents? So every single one of you in this room, regardless of your, your background, your religious tribe or stripe or whatever, God has hardwired you 
with ability and talent and gifting. Uh, the question is, what do you do with it? Um, do you, how do you use it? So how do you use the wiring that God has given you? And how you use that wiring may well tell you what the object of your worship is. So Paul, again, writing to the church in, in Rome, first century, and he says, you know, God has given to each person gifts, um, and it's kind of like a human body. And God, even as you have a hand and you have a foot and you have an ear and you have a mouth, this is the way God has arranged things, and he's given different people different kinds of gifts. And he tries to teach people in this passage, Romans 12, 3 to 8, uh, that you need to be using those gifts for the benefit of other people. Um, you need to be using them in a, in a selfless way, not in a selfish way. How do you use the talents and the abilities that God has given to you? Or are you even using them at all? Or maybe you think you don't have any talent. Um, I, I used to run a, a, a class, a course that evaluated people and questioned people to find out what their gifts and talents are. I never met one single person with less than three gifts as per the definition of gifts in the Bible's New Testament. I never met one person with less than three. Uh, I met plenty of people who don't use them. Um, it's sort of like taking a gift and leaving it on the shelf to collect dust. I met a, I've met a lot of people who do that. But I've never met one person with less than three gifts, not one. Whatever that gift may be, you know, and he, he identifies them here uh, in, the, in the church context, you know, people who teach, people who serve, people who administrate, people who encourage, people who give, all kinds of things, all kinds of gifts. But are we using them, and are we using them in a, in a, with a servant's heart, and are we using them for the benefit of other people? Uh, last month, uh, uh, in the month of December, I got a chance to observe that in the life of this church, as I saw people use their gifts and their abilities and their talents on two separate occasions for, you know, it's a lot of work, a lot of time. I mean, are there any of those bakers in the room? If you baked cookies, can you raise your hand? You know who I'm talking about, the cookie bakers? Yeah, okay, so some people went and baked all these cookies for the event that we had December the 24th. I mean, you, as I said last week, you baked your brains out. And we had, we had so many cookies. We had mo way more cookies than we needed. So what do we do? We just gave them away to people. We gave them to the staff who work here. Just gave them away to people and blessed people with just cookies. I mean, it's just, it's, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but you do have to be able to bake good cookies. You know, that, that goes a long way for people. It's just baking cookies, I know. But when somebody comes and, you know, they don't know you from, from Adam, and you're, you're kind to them, and you went out and baked these cookies for them, why? Well, it's for the benefit of other people. Uh, when I look at some of you, and you went and you served at the food bank for three, four hours, right after we had our service here, you run over to the food bank, and go and serve whatever it was. There's hundreds and hundreds of children there. Many of those children from underprivileged situations and, you know, living borderline poverty and all of that. And you went and you served and you served and you served. It's really easy stuff that you did. Can I just tell you how far that goes? Like that's using your abilities for somebody else's benefit. And so what are you doing with your talents? What do you, how do you use them? 
or are you using them at all? Whatever you're using them for, well, this may well be the object of your worship. Jesus told a, told a story um, in Matthew chapter 25. It's a, it's a picture of this. And um, he talks about a, a man like a boss, and he goes on a long journey, and he, he calls his servants, and he gives his servants the money that he has to look after his money. And he gives one a certain amount and another a different amount, different amounts to different people according to their wiring, according to their gifting. And then he goes on his journey. And he expects that the people will use his money to make more money. And so that's what happens. You know, you got one person, he says, oh, you gave me five bags of, of money. Well, look, I've got 10 bags now. You know, I found a way to make it make money. And the other person says, you gave me two bags. Well, now I got four bags for you. And there's this one guy and he didn't do anything with the money. He says, ah, this boss, I know what this boss is like. Like he, he, he scatters seed uh, and he, he harvests where he doesn't scatter. So I don't really like the boss and the way that he operates and I'm kind of afraid of the boss. Uh, and so I took the money and I just buried it in the sand. So he goes back to his boss when his boss returns to him. He says, here, here's your money. He says, I know what kind of man you are. And so I hid it in the sand. And wow, the response of his boss toward this man is pretty harsh. And the, the lesson that's being taught there is where do you use the abilities and the talents that God has given to you? Or do you just take them and bury them in the dirt? Because when you do that, well, you, you, you're showing what, what is the true object of your worship, you see. When you use those, ta those, those talents, those abilities, those things that God has har hardwired into you, and you use them for the benefit of others. Wow, you're really showing what the object is of your worship. And question number four, with this will end, uh, and this is always a sensitive one for people. How do we spend our treasure? Where you spend your money is a pretty good indicator of what the object is of your worship. So Jesus says this, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where you've got moths that come in and eat the clothing, and where you've got thieves who come in and steal, and where you've got rust that eats. But you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where you don't have moths that eat the clothing, or rust that eats the metal, or thieves that come in and steal. And here's his, his punchline, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where do you spend your money? Uh, that will tell you, again, what is the object of your worship. What do you spend your money on? Where do you use your talents? Where do you spend your time? And what's going on up here? And I would again submit to you that every single person in this room, you have an object or a person or a way of doing things, and you're worshiping that thing. Well, where's it going to lead you? And this is the challenge that the Bible would leave to us. Uh, the Bible would say that if you try and fill that, that place in your heart with something else other than God, it's going to lead you down a path of frustration. Uh, so the idea is that God has created all of us as creatures who worship is built into us. We're looking for something to devote our time and our talent and our treasure and our thoughts to. We look for this, and we see this across the world. 
Everyone has, is striving to worship something, it seems, without even using the word. But if we stuff something into that place in our heart that isn't God, it's going to lead us to a path of frustration. But if it's God who we put in there, and if it's him who we spend our you know, time, talent, treasure, and thoughts on, we're going to discover satisfaction. We're going to discover eternal life. We're going to discover that living water that Jesus talked about with the Samaritan woman at the well. I'd like the band, if they would come back, and they're going to uh, just do that song one more time as we close. Uh, this is amazing grace. That one has some tempo, so it'll warm our cold bones a little bit. This is amazing grace. It talks about the grace of God and what God has given to us. And when we, when we take that, that was the screen. Wow, I saw it pop. Yeah, I saw the thing. It'll probably come back. Wow, amazing. Yeah, you had to see it. The little bow went pew in the back. You know, when, when, God, when God gives us this gift of grace and we worship him, wow, our lives are really changed. And so this is a song about that. I'd like you to stand with me and I'm going to pray with you and then let them sing it one time. And then you are dismissed today. You have been a very captive audience. Is it, is it that you're cold or that you've been thinking? It's one or the other, okay? But let me, let me pray with you because this message, even preparing it, was a challenge to me. And I'm a pastor. And I say to myself, well, what am I thinking about, though? And where do I spend my time? And where do I spend my talent and my treasure? Where? Is it really God or is it something else? I ask myself that question.